Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning. It is good to see you guys. If we haven't met yet, my name is John, one of the pastors on staff here at Anchor, and it is good to see you guys. Uh, We had kids camp this week, which I just want to celebrate that one more time. It was so, so good. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you to every single person who made that possible, whether that's you told someone about it, you signed your kid up, you were a group leader, you jumped in somewhere else during the week. It was an incredible time, uh, just an awesome week. And as someone who had two kids as campers here, it was, it was awesome for them um, and just grateful for all of the work that everyone did to make it possible. Uh, We are finishing out our teaching series on Revelation today. And as we do that, I want you to turn to your neighbor First, say hi, neighbor. Okay, now I want you to tell your neighbor the, like, a book series, a TV show, a movie series or movie that you will watch or read again and again and again. Go ahead and talk to them. This is a safe place. Safe place. It's okay. All right, let's bring it back in, bring it back in. Let's do this. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if that piece of writing, whether it's book, TV show, or movie, was something that you first saw or read before you were 16 years old. Something you watched? Okay. Okay, more of this gathering. That's great. Uh, before you were 30. Before you were 30. Something you watched for the first time before you were 30. Okay, uh, after you were 30. We'll just, do, we'll just do hands on that. We won't do any more ages. Um, For me, the first book series that I read time and time and time again was the Harry Potter book series. Uh, I was in elementary school when the very first Harry Potter book came out, uh, and I feel like I'm wired to be in that demographic, right, of just being captivated by that story. I remember my sister and I would fight over who got to read the new one when we got it from uh, the library, uh, or later when our family had more money, the book store. Um, and, and we would read it. I remember when the last one came out, reading it. And, and here's the interesting thing. What I did immediately after I finished the last one, after I came out the first time, as I went back and I read the first one again. You see, I think there's something about these stories that we love where knowing how it ends doesn't actually make us less interested in it. And in fact, it actually made me more interested to look at it and see, oh, here's a hint that gets dropped that I now know how it ends. And we pick up more things when we engage in it, right? And that's our hope for us as Jesus followers as we look at the book of Revelation. It's not that we would look at the book of Revelation and go, okay, we know how it ends and we don't need to care anymore. But actually that knowing how the story ends and knowing where everything goes at the end of time would actually motivate us and have us be more excited and more engaged about getting to participate in the story that God is writing today. And so that's what it means for us to live as future people. We've been in this series, this very brief overview of Revelation, where we've been saying, what does it look like to live as future people? And today we're going to talk about the idea that I think someone who lives as a future person should live with the end in mind. 
So to know what the end in mind is, we're going to read that. So we're going to bounce around a little bit, but we're going to be in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. We'll have it up on the screen. We're going to pick up in Revelation 21, verse 1. If you have a paper Bible, it's going to be basically to the end of your book. Um, But it's also on the screen. It says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. It's really cool, right? This is the bookend of scripture because we see this at the beginning of the Bible. We get to see God dwelling with people at the end of the Bible as well. Uh, They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Uh, really cool picture, really scary verse at the end. Put a pin in that scary verse. We're coming back to it, but, but we, we're going to jump into 22, and we will come back to that, I promise. But uh, 22, chapter, uh, chapter 22, verse 1 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Uh, If you can, like, underline that, no longer will there be any curse. We're coming back to that. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's a lot going on in these passages, but we do get to see a pretty clear picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be a day, it says, where everything looks and feels and is brand new. And it says this, that those who follow God will be present there at the end. There's also a list of those individuals who won't be there. And again, we will talk about that later. Uh, but we get to see this picture of Jesus returning and Jesus creating a new heaven and a new earth. And it's a beautiful picture. I think a lot of times the temptation we have when we see this is we get caught up in these weird, almost semantic arguments that are fun to go down for a little bit, but eventually run out of room, which is like, what's it going to be like there? And the amount of times that we've heard, or I've even said, like, I think I'll be bored in heaven because our brains can't process forever. Like we just have no concept, no ability to process forever. And I think it's good to ask some of these questions. Uh, Daryl Johnson, whose commentary we've been, we've been sharing a lot during this series, says um, that some of the things that we can do on this side of heaven, we will actually be able to do better and more fully on the other side of heaven as well. And he said this, he says, it's important to remember that this new heavens and new earth isn't some like foreign outer space planet, but it's a new fully built, fully designed, fully made version of what we are living in now. 
And so there are going to be some aspects of what we do now that we will continue to do on the other side of heaven, where we have purpose. Uh, he talks about creativity as something that we will get to do more fully in the new heavens and new earth, and I love that. Throughout the history of the church, creativity has often been talked about as maybe a mark of the Imago Dei or, or being made in the image of God um, as people who are creative and can create. And I love this idea that in the new heavens and new earth, we will be unleashed to be the creative forces that God fully designed us to be in our unique ways. I think that's rad. But we don't want to get too far down, right? Because you get too far down this and it's like how many angels can stand on the head of a pin like types of conversations and it just starts winding down. And so we do want to get back and focus and say, what are the main things for us today from these two chapters? I told you to underline uh, chapter 22, verse three, where it says this, no longer will there be any curse. I love that. See, the curse that it's referencing, that's why there are bad things in our world. Why is there brokenness from the original curse that came from humanity's first act of disobedience? The moment where humanity could have chosen to live forever according to the best plan that God had for us, but instead we chose our own desires. That moment in the Garden of Eden that we see in Genesis where Adam and Eve took the fruit that they weren't supposed to because they believed a lie that Satan told them. The curse that came from that decision, that's why there are bad things in the world. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's why. We live in a broken, fallen world. And so that verse in 22.3 is so meaningful because it says that curse is gone. It is no more in these new heavens and earth. And that's why this incredible world that we see described in these two chapters, that's what makes it possible. That's what makes it viable is that that curse is gone. So as we get to close out this series, we want to say, what does it look like to actually live as future people? I think the first thing that it means is this, is to have the perspective of the future. Have the perspective of the future. This is not something that we do naturally. It is so easy for us to get focused on the present and sometimes even the past, right? Uh, I did youth ministry for about eight years full time. And man, uh, teenagers are just one example of how hard it is to have the future in mind. Like our brains just aren't wired that way, especially as they're still developing. And so, psychologists have studied this, right? We are bad at delayed gratification. It is not normal for us to have the future in mind. But I think there's a few things that we can see in God and in the history of God's people that will help us to have a future perspective. So the first thing is this, like, we need to read the Bible. We need to read the story of God's people. It is filled with references to the future, filled with them. There are the very obvious references to the future that we see in the Old Testament, that we see in the prophets, where they are pointing to the Messiah, they are pointing to this time in Revelation that we've been talking about. But there are other kind of more subtext aspects of the story of Scripture that point us to a future perspective. If you look at the teachings of Jesus, they are filled with a healthy Jesus kingdom future first perspective. This idea of denying wants or desires in this earthly world because we know the heavenly reward is greater. That is a common theme in Jesus's teachings. Jesus constantly is saying, let's not focus on what culture says is important right now, but what Jesus says is important down the road. And again, it's always that down the road, that future perspective. Another thing that we can do is we can listen to the stories of God's people. 
An unfortunate reality of the curse and of living in a broken, fallen world is that there have always been times when a significant amount of the people of God have been oppressed. And hearing the stories of those who have been oppressed is a powerful way to be reminded of what it means to have a future perspective. In the American church today, many of our songs and hymns have roots in the historical African-American faith community. Songs of hope, songs of lament, songs that focus on a future hope that was not found in this world. Why is there so much focus on that in that history and that heritage? Well, I think in large part because when hope in this life is taken forcibly from you, you look even more to a future hope that isn't found in this world. What other choice do you have? And so there are saints in the church that have come before us for decades and centuries that, again, had their present and their earthly future forcibly taken from them, and they had no choice but to look to the future hope that God had. And we can take strength from their faith. We can take strength from their endurance of incredibly difficult things and the fact that they stayed focused on God and the future. And can learn. We can read the words of those songs. We can hear their stories and say, oh, this is what it means to have a future perspective. I think also we need to do this. We need to watch what we worship. You see, the Bible warns us against worshiping false idols, but there's actually another kind of worship that I found to be kind of dangerous. You see, when we worship the ideas of the new heavens and the new earth too much, it's really easy to lose sight of things here, isn't it? I found that when I focus too much, or I worship the new heavens and new earth too much, I get so discouraged here in the present world. I get angry. I get frustrated that the, this broken world we inhabit doesn't look like the Bible says it will one day. When that happens, I don't actually get frustrated in a healthy way. I get really frustrated in kind of an apathetic, careless kind of way. I think if we look at the teachings of Jesus, we need to know and understand that being apathetic is the last thing that believers are called to be. And instead of worshiping the, the, the new heavens and the new earth, and, and Brian says in his prayer, we need to be looking towards Jesus because he is the one who brings the new heavens and the new earth. He is the one who is worthy of that worship, of our, of our beholding, of our attention. And when we worship Jesus and we focus on Jesus, I actually think this, it helps us with something that's really, really important to live as future people, which is this. Once we have a future perspective, we then have to live out the perspective of the future. We have to live out the future perspective. See, it's one thing to think about the future. It's one thing to know that from stories or scripture. It's another to actually apply it, right? We can have all the knowledge in the world, but it is useless unless we figure out how to apply it or put it into practice. And so this is where we're going to spend a lot of time because this is really, really important. This is the number one thing I want us to take away from today and, and largely from this series, which is this. We have to remember that Jesus is the hero. We have to remember that Jesus is the hero. As a culture, we are wired for hero stories. Nothing has shown us that more than the last like 15 years of movies, right? Like we are wired for stories about heroes. It's interesting. I think a lot of times we are, comf I'm comfortable with the idea that the world needs a hero. I'm actually less comfortable with the fact that John needs a hero. But see, when we acknowledge that Jesus is the hero, what we're saying is that we need saving, but we're not comfortable with that, especially in, in the culture that many of us have grown up in, right? In America, we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We are individuals. We can do it all on our own. This idea that we need a savior is uncomfortable. 
But we do, because we are broken. I am broken. I need help. I can't save myself. We have to remember that Jesus is the hero. I think sometimes, from my perspective, I've done full-time ministry for close to a decade, and when I lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the hero, I start to put more and more weight on my own shoulders. I start to overvalue my role as a pastor or as a, as a youth pastor, right? So we have this constant focus on the fact that Jesus is the hero, not us. It's easy to make our role feel bigger than it should be. And I get why we do that, right? There's that list in Revelation 21 that I said we would come back to, that scary verse, right? Where it lists out the new heavens and new earth and then it says, here's a list of people who aren't gonna be here. And I think by anyone's nature, when we see, hey, here's this really, really cool thing. By the way, these people don't get to be here. That hurts our hearts. A lot, we have different responses to grief. Sometimes we get sad. Sometimes we get angry. Sometimes we get numb. But it hurts our hearts when we see that. It's interesting to dive a little bit into that list of people. It's an unusual list of, of things in that they're not usually grouped together. But if you take some time and look at it, the thing that all these things grouped into the list of like, these people won't be there, is that it's all people who've chosen to put their value in something else other than Jesus. Their identity, their worth, their value, they've chosen to find that in something far less worthy than Jesus. And when we see that collective pain, that collective hurt, that collective like heartbreak of, oh, I, what do you mean people won't be there? When we see the collective brokenness of the world around us or the individual brokenness around us, we want to help. We have something inside of us that says, no, we want to help. And it's really tricky when we don't let Jesus be the hero and we try to put that on ourselves, that's when we start to make mistakes, whether we're trying to help people either individually or collectively. Individually, right, as a, as a Jesus follower, it can be super tempting to want to keep people from that fate, from that second death, to try and put that fate on myself. But I can't save myself, let alone someone else. But how, and I think we cognitively understand that, but how often do we fail to live that out? How often do we try and save someone else? I just think this experience has taught me that when we try to save someone else, it goes really poorly. And I'm not just talking about the angry people with the bullhorns and the signs outside the Mariners and Seahawks games. For sure I'm talking about them because that's bad, don't do that. But I am also talking about when you and I try to do that as well. The times that we lead with correction instead of curiosity. The times that we are so consumed with trying to save someone else that we put it on ourselves to deliver them. A lot of times the narrative in my head, and maybe this is a familiar narrative for you as well, it goes something like this. If I just say the right words, then they'll change their life, say yes to Jesus, and everything will be okay. It's a lot on me, right? If I say the right word, what are the right words? Here's the thing, we can't even change our own hearts. Not really, anyways. Like, the Bible's really clear. Jesus is the one who changes hearts, not us. So I want to suggest this, that the idea of living as future people means doing a lot less of correcting behavior and a lot more of pointing to Jesus. A lot less of how dare you and you can't do that and a lot more of there's a guy named Jesus who gave me everything. I'd love for you to meet him too. Can we read together sometime? A wise friend of mine said this. He said that we need to spend more time with the Jesus we see in the beginning of each of the gospels, right? The first four books of the New Testament 
than anything else. Because that Jesus, the Jesus we see at the beginning of the Gospels, is the Jesus who was introducing himself to a world that was unfamiliar with him, a world that was far from him. And I don't know about you, but even though I've said yes to Jesus, I still find myself far from him at times, right? Because I forget. Or I say, I don't want to be close to Jesus because there's actually something in my life that he wants to change and I don't want to let him. So what if making Jesus the hero is, is not correcting people, but saying, hey, will you read the Bible with me? Will you read the story of Jesus with me? I remember this lesson came up sharp for me with a mentor when I was talking with him about a young adult who was volunteering in my youth ministry that I was discipling. And I, was, I, I remember saying, I was like, Brandon, they're just not getting it. What am I doing wrong? And he goes, well, it's not you. He's like, John, he goes, Jesus is working on their heart, not you. He goes, now, John, is Jesus working on their heart issues in the order I would pick? No, he's not, and I'm mad at Jesus. <laughs> he's like, I'm also frustrated that Jesus isn't working on their heart as fast as I would like Jesus to. He goes, but guess what, John? It's Jesus' job to work on their heart. It's not mine and it's not yours. It's your job as their pastor is to point them to Jesus. See, it's interesting. When we point to Jesus as the hero, we have to look through the lens that he does. And this is where I think that like collectively in our history of Jesus followers going back centuries, this is one of the areas where it's so easy to, to, to have that little tiny course correction in the plane and then like two hours down the road, you're 100 miles off or probably larger than that. There are pilots here who can tell me um, afterwards that I did that math wrong. That's why you studied math and I did music. Um, right, but we, it's so easy to look at the story of Jesus and miss how he did what he did and why he did it. One of the things that's fascinated me ever since I started learning about Jesus as a teenager and thought I knew more than the adults in the room uh, was I got fascinated by this idea that there were people who lived alongside Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, who heard him teach, heard him preach, saw him do incredible miracles, maybe even saw him after he'd been raised from the dead and missed that he was the Messiah. Again, I, as a teenager, I thought I was smarter than everyone. I was like, man, how dumb are these people? I thought maybe they just were bad people and that's why they missed it. Maybe they wanted to be selfish and do their own things and they, they said, Jesus doesn't let me do that. Maybe they, they hated Jesus. They had something hard in their heart. And, and some of those things might be true. But the more I studied scripture and the more I read about that time period, I realized that actually a good number of the people who lived alongside Jesus and missed that he was the Messiah were church people like me. See, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies that pointed to this Messiah, the one who's going to save the world, who's going to be the hero of everything, but they missed how Jesus fulfilled them. They missed how Jesus lived out those prophecies. And one of the biggest reasons why they missed it was collectively, they believed this, that Jesus was gonna come and overthrow the harsh Roman government. This evil secular government that was persecuting religious folks of all kinds, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow that earthly kingdom and take earthly power and set up a new government. They thought that the Messiah was going to come and take political power because at that time, kind of like our time, they believed that that was the highest form of power that they had here on earth. And they saw the prophecy and said, well, if he's not doing that, then he, that he must not be the Messiah. 
Because I think there is a moment as a church and we all go through this where we look and go, man, the brokenness of the world is huge. The brokenness of the world is immense. There is so much sin, so much darkness, so much brokenness, so much that angers us about the way that the world is, that it shouldn't be, that we can't go one by one changing hearts. We have to do something collectively. And I under, like that is a deep desire. But so often when we look at that, we miss who Jesus was and how he went about collectively saving people. It's a trap that the church has fallen into time and time again. I grew up and experienced an example of that. I grew up in a, in a Baptist church over in Bremerton in the 90s with amazing people who loved Jesus, who knew the Bible inside and out and pointed me to Jesus so, so well. But there was a particular uh, pitfall that this church fell into a lot. I remember we had a, a bulletin board in the lobby of that church that was a, it was a narthex because that's the kind of church it was. Um, there was like 10 people in the room who had a similar experience to me growing up. I see you. Um, <laughs> but the, this bulletin board in the narthex uh, was updated regularly with different political victories for Christians in the, in the country of America. And there was great hope and emphasis placed on the role of Christians to vote and to ensure that we had a Christian government. And make no mistake, in this church, there was clearly one political party that was the Christian party and one that was not. I remember listening in Sunday school as my Sunday school teachers took the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel and tried to put them on the country of America and said, see, the Bible says this, so if we as a nation do these things and God will bless us and we will be a Christian nation. And I remember going, like, I don't... Like, I don't think that's what my dad said about the Bible. <laughs> and I did ask Jeeves, because I'm that old, not Google old. And I don't think that's what those places say either. And I remember thinking from the most charitable way that I could look at those well-intentioned leaders, that they were looking at this jigsaw puzzle of the Bible in our country, and they were taking the promises of Israel, and they were trying to make that puzzle piece fit, and it just didn't quite do it. And I get that. I, I'm bad at puzzles. I'm trying to shove those puzzle pieces down. Times We get in trouble when we do that with the Bible, right? When we misapply things from the Bible, that's where we get into trouble. And while that type of church is what I experienced growing up and I'm closest and most familiar to it, there is that same pitfall for those on the other side of the aisle as well. You see, the teachings of Jesus are really cool, but they're really dangerous because they can be used by politicians on either side of the aisle to twist for their own political gain. And here's the thing that's scary for us as a church and scary for us as Jesus followers is that politicians understand this pitfall so, so well. There are for sure politicians in this country on either side of the aisle that try to exploit followers of Jesus for their own personal gain or political influence. Now, if you look at the last 30 to 40 years, it has largely been politicians on one side of the aisle who've been the most shameless about it but it is something that a wide range of politicians take advantage of. And that angers me. To see that the bride of Christ, the church, the institution that Jesus has set up for followers of him to live radically counterculturally has been tried to be bought and sold for political gain and personal influence. That angers me. What makes me really angry and really sad is this, is that there are friends of mine who I love dearly that have been misled into believing that this is what Jesus wants who have been misled to believing that pursuing political earthly power for Christians is the highest calling of a follower of Jesus. I don't blame them. 
They've been misled by politicians, by social media, by pastors, by Sunday school leaders, by what the world says is important, and they have grasped for it. They've been misled to believe that Jesus would want to bring about political change when he never once did that in his time on earth. Jesus is the greatest orator and storyteller that ever walked the earth, and he never did a political speech, guys. Like, he just didn't care about tearing down political governments because he knew it's going to change anyways. There's always, it's not going to last. Now, did Jesus care about tearing down religious institutions that were harmful? Absolutely. He flipped tables. He chased people out. He said, how dare you do this in my father's house? Cared about that with religious institutions, but not with the government. He showed us a truth that too often I forget, and I think we as a church have collectively forgot as well, which is this, political change is not the most important change, heart changes. Heart change is the most important change we will ever see, either individually or collectively. I don't know of a single person who has changed their heart or beliefs based on a law. I just don't. Laws can change behavior, totally. But when we look at scripture, it's actually really clear that just because someone changes their behavior doesn't mean their heart's changed. Scripture is very clear though. It says this, it says, if your heart is changed, then your behavior will follow. Right? But think about it. Laws can't change hearts. That's why it's taken so long for us to recover from the effects of, of, of slavery and segregation in our country. And we're still dealing with the effects of that. Slavery was outlawed over a century ago, but just because a law was written doesn't mean that racists were suddenly like, well, guess what? It's now illegal, so I'm going to stop judging people on the color of their skin. Doesn't happen, right? Hate crime legislation doesn't change the fact that there is still hate in people's hearts. It can change behavior, but it can't change hearts. If Jesus wanted to overthrow the government, he would have. The Roman government was terrified of Jesus, one of the main reasons he was killed, but he never did. Because he knows that political change and political power is always fleeting. It will never last. We saw that so clearly over the last two weeks in the series when we dug into the city of Babylon and we said, this will never last. Why are people suspicious of the church? Why do people not trust the church as a whole? Because they look at churches who are grasping for money, for social status or political status and go, I already have that. I have that in Babylon. I have that in culture. I have that in the world. Why do I need that in the church? I thought you were supposed to be different. Sometimes it's not our individual actions that people are calling us hypocrites for. It's our collective actions. They go, I actually have enough power grabbing in the real world. I thought the church was different. And Jesus was. We need to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and be different in that way where you have the same mission that Jesus did, which is changing the hearts of people by pointing them to Jesus. Sometimes that's really slow. Sometimes it's one person at a time. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable because we have to have real conversations instead of just putting things on social media. That's hard. But I think it's what God asks us to do. So a question that I'm asking myself and I want to ask you guys as we go through this series is, and wrap it up is, can Anchor be a church that truly follows the way of Jesus here? One that lets Jesus be the hero and doesn't center ourselves in the story. And we know that heart change is far more lasting than political change. A church that knows that whether it's individually or collectively, the only way to save people is to let Jesus do the saving. We know how the story ends. We just read the end of it. 
Can we let that story motivate and spur us on to pointing people to Jesus even more not being apathetic about the state of the world? Can we be a church that, that leads well with that? A church that doesn't lead with things like, well, you know, the Bible says that this is wrong. Or, and less of, well, the church doesn't support that. And be a church that's known for people who say, you know, it's really interesting that you said that. It reminds me of something that Jesus once said. Jesus is the hero. We're gonna talk about that with, with communion in a little bit, but right now we're gonna have the band come up and then uh, my friend Brandon is gonna come up as well. One of the things that we see in, in Revelation so clearly is that Jesus is the hero and Jesus is the hero for all peoples. And so one of the things that we've been doing throughout this series is we've been having people come up and pray together in a, in a different language other than English um, as a little bit of a taste of what this new heavens and new earth will be like when we have people from all tribes and tongues and nations coming together and, and praying together. And so from Brandon's up here, uh, Brandon, uh, I'll be praying in English and you won't be. What language will you be praying in? No, I'll be praying in Swahili. Uh, so the elephant in the room is Brandon does not uh, resemble the traditional demographic no. of someone who speaks Swahili. So how did you come um, about to, to knowing? And, and you shared last time, you've even preached mm -hmm. in Swahili. Yeah. So, so you don't just know it a little bit. No, I know a good amount. <laughs> so how did yeah, that happen? So, so I'm just from California, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not a East African, you know, by by uh, by genetics or whatever. But uh, my family and I, we were missionaries uh, in Tanzania for eight years. So um, initially, we were working at a children's home for a few years. Um, you know, going to, to serve the orphan. Um, in the process of actually doing that, we recognized that actually um, these kids have family and could be in family. Um, and it's more like we want to get them home, like we sung about earlier today. So um, out of uh, doing that for a few years, we ended up switching uh, ministries and start really working with the local church to see kids uh, go back into families and see the church really mobilized towards that. Um, and part and parcel with working with uh, local churches in Tanzania is speaking Swahili. So we would do a lot of uh, uh, resources in Swahili, um, scripture resources, uh, newspaper articles, uh, running conferences in Swahili, preaching in Swahili, uh, and today praying in Swahili yes. for the first time in a few <laughs> years. So. Um, I, and I love that. I think... I think one of the cool things about the people of God throughout our time is that there's been people who have felt motivated to say, why should we have to wait till the end of time to have these important conversations with our brothers and sisters who speak a different language? People who said yes to going to a new place, to a new location, and loving the people there so well, including speaking in their own language. So that's fun. Thanks for being here and sharing this. We're going to pray together. Um, so you guys... Uh, you can pray with us. You can hold your hands out. You can sit, uh, whatever feels comfortable for you. God, Jesus, even now, you are making all things new. We look forward to the day when there will be no more tears, no more death, and no more sin. Come, Lord. Keep us content now while we wait. Give us strength to serve and seek the good while we wait. You make all things new. Come, Lord. Unafanya mambo yote kuwa mapya. Njoo bwana. 
Amen. Thank you, Brandon. We're heading now into a time of worship and communion, and there's communion stations at the front and the back of the room, and, and communion is this. Communion is something that we do every week to remember that ultimate heroic sacrifice that Jesus made on all of our behalf. It's a moment where anyone who has said yes to Jesus, even if you said yes to Jesus today, can come forward and take the communion elements, which is the cup and the bread. And Jesus said, right before he made this heroic sacrifice, he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we do that, we are remembering that sacrifice that Jesus made that gave us so much hope. Yes, hope for life eternal that we see here in scripture, but also hope for life present. We have to bring a little bit of heaven here to earth. I also want to say this, that throughout this series, I, I, we've been focusing a lot on freedom. And the freedom that we have in Jesus, the freedom from anxiety about the future that Jesus brings, the freedom from worrying that Jesus brings, the freedom to live as a child of God that Jesus brings that we see by knowing the end of the story. And so if you have something on your heart that you're struggling with, you're like, I just, I don't feel free and I want to talk to someone. We would love to have people pray for you at either of these prayer stations on, on either side of the room. Maybe there's something else that you just want prayer for. That's awesome. That's what they're there for. So as the band sings this next song together, you have a chance to take communion get prayed for, and, and also worship God. As we head into this time, will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the picture that you gave to the disciple John that he wrote down and became the book of Revelation. God, we thank you for the, the complexities that you understand that we never will understand, but it, we know that you have a plan. God, I pray this, that we would strive daily to have your future perspective that we would strive every day to have a perspective of yours pointing towards the future and not get bogged down in things of this world. And God, we pray above all else that we would be a church that points to Jesus as the hero. May we never make this about ourselves. May we never make this about anchor. But may we only make this about your son, Jesus.